Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. Welcome to Celine's Salon. Step right in where you belong. Share a poem or sing a song. It's open house, so why not come along? Hocus Pocus, it's our Halloween Celine Salon. <laughs> well, we've got a wonderful show today and we are keeping our show alive, as is Soho Radio with all of their other shows. And today on Celine Salon, I am so happy to have a very lovely young lady, Romani. We're going to have a good chat with her and we're going to promote two beautiful songs. How are you doing, Romney? Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm really good. Uh, Really excited to play your music on our show. (laughs) And I'll be speaking to you in a moment. Great. And we've got Chris Sullivan as our featured guest on Celine's Salon today. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? Hello. I'm good. Good. Looking forward to having a wonderful interview with you. Me too. Celine Salon, best radio show in Soho. I had a lovely, lovely, lovely message from my dear friend Steve, who sent me a track by his daughter. I've known Steve a long, 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 long time, and I thought, you know, I'll give it a listen. Um, I didn't just listen to it, I was blown away. This young lady has the most beautiful voice and a style. Um, I'm not saying it's Lily Allen, but there was some kind of slight feel of that. And, and just her own uniqueness. So, our first guest up today on Celine's Salon is Romani. Um, without further ado, Romani, I'm going to hand it over to you. Great. Hi, this is Music School Dropout. This is my first debut single, Surefire. Hope you like it. down from my roof felt the betrayal let it trickle down my spine again and i'm lucky to have romany with us right now on the phone hi romany how are you doing i'm very well thank you how are you and are you in the lovely sunny parts of uh, canterbury today um no i'm just sat in the manager's office at work um it's pretty miserable outside but yeah no we move well all good thank you i think with your music we'll make sunshine and make people feel warm and good oh that means the world thank you very much i'm so excited to be on your show that's okay um as i said i've known you at par for a long time and it's you know you sort of get things and i can listen to this but i genuinely thought this is a fantastic unique style of music and your lyrics i'm assuming you write your own lyrics 
Yeah, I've always wrote all my own lyrics. The only um, person I've worked with on the track is my friend Ben, who produced Surefire. Okay. Yeah, um, he. Uh, we met. Actually, met him doing production for somebody else. We, I was recording on a different track in Manchester, and yes. we met uh, in a studio. And we just really got on. And he's always kind of followed what I was doing on Instagram, mm-hmm. and he kind of reached out during the quarantine period and just said, "Great, do you want to make a track together?" And then yeah, it just got, went from there, and it was great. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I'm I'm really loving lots of stories about, you know, different projects happening during the quarantine. And I think it's inspired a lot of people to think, oh, hold on, I'm going to go back and do this. What are your 100%. thoughts on that? Did it sort of help you cope? Was it a good coping tool for you 100%. to be able to I think, immerse um, yourself? Yeah, I think basically lots of us, like especially creative people, just don't get the time to kind of sit down and really unpack what they're feeling just mm. because obviously we all have jobs like yes. creativity doesn't generally pay the bills at the minute yeah. so it was actually quite refreshing to have like that time to get back in touch with music because obviously my my artist name is music school dropout so i feel like since i had dropped out of uni i hadn't really tried to write anything because i was feeling a bit deflated and yeah. once i had that time like a lot of songs were coming out so it was really good for me i yes. don't know about everybody else but in terms of my stuff yeah definitely 100 percent. and who are your influences because it's i was thinking not portishead but it was something was something really like go that real kind of ghostly atmospheric voice with yeah it's funny you should say that because i've always really loved trip hop um and i think when i first started making music it all kind of sounded a lot like that and then as time's gone on i think it has become I mean, it's not necessarily pop, but it's definitely a lot more commercial than it used to be. Mm. Um, I do love people like Martina Topley Bird. Um, I do love Lily Allen, so I can definitely see why people keep referencing that. And I'm yeah. not sad about that at all. I think she's great. Yeah. Um, people like Lord, who kind of like they do pop, but it's really minimal. And the production's just quite bare. And then they kind of come in with like quite focused lyrics. I like mm-hmm. things like that. So I and think I definitely look to those sorts of artists. Aside from singing and writing as a, a lyricist, do you play any instruments? Um, not, I'm not really a maestro in anything. I feel like that's something I need to definitely sit down and like um, conquer definitely a lot more. But, um, but you, I play, you are because yeah. your voice is an instrument. Yay. <laughs> I guess, I guess, yay. <laughs> <laughs> I guess singing, definitely. Um, I play piano a bit. I play guitar a bit. Yeah. And I also do really like to produce. The, yes. uh, the other track, um, Keep On, I actually produce that myself. That's amazing. So I've, yeah, I've really gotten into production more and more, especially as I've had more time to kind of uh, work out how to use a lot of the software that I have. So that's um, definitely been a fun thing to do. What's your next step? Where do you think, what, 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 what's your sort of, you know, um, I think where in do you terms see yourself of, going once this is sort of, you know, once we get back yeah. to some form of normality normalcy yeah Yeah. um i'd love to release an album because obviously everything that's come out so far has just been singles so Mm. i think i'd love to kind of pour my time into one project and then just see where that takes me and i'd love to kind of gig i mean i have had some people reach out in london after my first release and they've been saying about doing some gigs in hoxton so hopefully that might go through but it's just obviously we have no idea what's going to happen with the live music scene yeah We'll have to get you to come down and do something at Celine's salon. I would love to do that, 100%. Because yes, in a way, you could also do it a cappella. That is true, yes. And I, I do love playing acoustically as well, so I'd love to do something and like I that. And I think that would be great. So I think our first opening Celine's salon, you should be our headliner. Okay, all right, agreed. <laughs> I will do it. Just plugging <laughs> that one already <laughs> to all our listeners. Romilly is going to be our headliner. 
oh yes <laughs> <laughs> love it <laughs> how do you feel sort of you know you're you know it's interesting because we've got chris sullivan on after you who's a pretty big legend and brought a mate you know you should really check him out and listen to okay. the you know he's um you know he started he was the influence of the first clubbing and scene and uh bringing bands oh, wow. and djs together from everywhere and himself a musician you know what how do you feel you know how how old are you ramon ramani sorry um uh, so i'm literally i've just turned 22 yeah how do you yeah. feel at your age group having to live through this you know are you able to um, I think obviously it's difficult and I think everybody wants to feel like they have it the hardest but I yeah. think um I think we've generally we've become a lot closer in our friendships and stuff because of corona and I think that creative people are definitely looking to collaborate more and all of that can kind of go we've realized that a lot of that can go forward through like technology we can do that over the phone we can do that through zoom calls and I think it's just actually pushed us kind of work harder for like the creative side of things that we want as opposed to just like the day jobs yep. that we have just to you know pay bills okay. and obviously with everything that was said with uh boris recently yes. about how you know like he thinks we should reboot and retrain in terms yep. of creative jobs i think that's just kind of pissed everybody off and they've been like no we're actually we're gonna try you know, really hard to do this music thing the only so booting i, I want to do with, good. the only booting i want to do with boris is booting him up the bum yeah literally <laughs> put him in the booty camp you know that <laughs> anyway Romani, i, I want to say thank you so much for coming on to the show today no problem thank you for having me once again Romani, what a lovely lovely interview and would you be kind enough to choose your last track which i believe is a bonus track Yes, this is the bonus track. You can stream this on all major platforms. And this song is called Keep On. I hope you also like it. It's Celine Salon. <laughs> Our featured guest today is a polymath, force of nature, from being a legend and iconic figure in the clubbing world, music, fashion, journalism, and acclaimed author, oh, and artist. This is a man who has and still continues to lead a rich and colourful life. Whenever I'm doing the Dean Street Shuffle, it's hard to miss Chris, as he's the most stylish man, complete with beret and a sense of excitement. Basically, you can't miss him in the crowd. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you. That's very kind of you. Please, indeed. <laughs> well, it's true. <laughs> you brighten up, you know, it's lovely to see men dressing dapper and, you know, you always look well, I great. Well, can't, I can't see any reason why they shouldn't. Myself. I know. Um, so, Chris, I just wanted to open up with one of my favourite lines from you. I remember being out one night in Soho and there was you, Phil Dirtbox and Steve Strange... And I made a comment along the lines of the Welsh have a major influence in the West End. And you remarked, that's because we're the toughier. <laughs> yeah, we, 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 we made you an offer you can't understand. <laughs> I still yeah. giggle and I share yeah. that with friends. Yeah. And, you know, you, you, I'd, I'd just like you to sort of tell me a bit about your Welsh roots and the connections with the Dirt Box and Steve, Steve Strange. Well, um, me and well, Steve, both Steve and uh, both Rob and Phil, both come from Blackwood, and I come from Merthyr Tydfil. 
Both are kind of really kind of tough towns, really sort of hard, you know, drinking, hard fighting towns. And both of us were, all of us were kind of outsiders to, mm-hmm. so to basically to have any kind of recreation that didn't involve fighting. We had to orga- organize ourselves to get out of the vicinity in which we lived and go to somewhere that was rather more civilised. So that usually, for me and Steve, especially strange, that is, that involved going to Wigan Casino in the 70s when Wigan Casino was just basically, wasn't much different from the Blitz or the Wag or anything in that. It was an empty space that that had a licence till midnight that was commandeered by a load of Northern Soul people and the DJs therein who basically took it over when the club was closed, when it was empty, played their music that their crowd loved and only that music to a select crowd who the only ones who knew what was going on so it was not far far you know from the blitz it was not far from the wag like i've said the dirt box so we'd seen that model in action yeah and we knew that the only way that you know especially in the in the 80s when you know you i couldn't if i wore a berry in the 80s in the soul there'd be a fair chance i'd get in a, a fight yeah. and uh you know there's no way of getting around that and so we, all three of us, we all created these environs where people of a similar nature, people who dress, people who just wanted to be themselves, people who wanted to listen to music, whether gay, straight, black, white, or whatever, could go and be protected within this this area just for one night. And oh. that's how the one-night principle started. It just was where we, you know, there were so many different tribes that were warring with each other. We had to kind of corral mm. each other's group into specific areas yeah. as, uh, as, as protection as much as anything else, apart yeah. from the fact that, you know, I mean, if you can imagine, I'll just give you a one uh, thing. Can you imagine me dressed in my monocle and Steve Strange dressed as Robin Hood being in your local, local mecha ballroom? <laughs> No. That. no, no. So, so that's where it came from, and I Bloody think because hell. we all come from extremely rough places, that I think we all three knew we had to create something that existed outside of of that, and that's what we did with London. So when we came to London, we we saw the wood for the trees because I think a lot of Londoners here they were in it, yeah. uh, they didn't see it, but we we as outsiders saw a gap in the market. There was an emerging group of rather unusually dressed people that were getting picked on, that were get could we couldn't get into clubs at yeah. all. In, they just would not let us in and uh, so not that we wanted to go in anyway you know um, so we, we, we all sort of well me and Steve anyway commandeered Tuesday night weekday clubs when and my introduction to clubs was also introduced by another fellow Welshman from Merthyr Tidville the Stephen Marnie who's the one who okay. in, he introduced me first to uh, uh, Sweetie at the oh, San Maritz yes, and yeah. that was my first night, which was in oh, 1980, we've... January 1980. And then subsequently I did La Kilt and all that stuff. All in Soho, by the way. Yes. And don't forget the great thing about us in Soho at the time, that Soho was a place where it was only outsiders. When I say outsiders, it was prostitutes, pimps, drug addicts, criminals, yeah. touts, pickpockets. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like the, the, uh, the outsider elite. It was a complete, you know, it was, it was sort of... It was like Dante's Inferno, yeah. and uh, you know the only people that went there were drunken, sort of servicemen or mm-hmm. drunk, even more drunken uh, uh, guys on their stag night or touts <laughs> looking for, looking for prostitutes. It wasn't a very nice place, yeah. and uh, as as a result, 
their clubs were only busy on the weekend, full of tourists and the people I've just mentioned. So in the yes. week, they were empty. So we saw that gap, mm-hmm. and we went in and we filled it. <laughs> and that's how it all began. And from that little sort of seed, Mighty Acorns grew, and the whole one-nighter philosophy grew out of that, really. Yeah. Which went, And before you knew it... 85, there was a timeout would have something like 10 pages devoted to one-nighters clubs without any photographs whatsoever. Yeah. And there would be like literally 20 different clubs where it'd be ska, rock, you know, electro, hip-hop, funk, northern soul, Latin, all on any one night yes. and in Soho. And, uh, and it was a great thing to see. I remember I was 13, my mum was going to all of your sex clubs oh thanks for that <laughs> and I've I just loved all the flyers we had them all over our fridge yeah and I wouldn't let her throw them away because I just loved all the well the that's artwork. a very that's a very interesting thing you should say that because people oh. really underestimate the the influence the Xerox photocopier had on nightclubs because all of a sudden imagine none of us had any money yeah so this was the policy you know you you, you, you if you had a, if you had knew lots of people you could you previously if you wanted stuff printed yes it cost a lot of money now it was literally five or less you get like a thousand flyers or however many go around to all the clubs and you should they should let you in for free because it was like a really tight group of promoters yeah. you give them out and then you'd say to the, the guy on the door, or we take the door, you take the bar, or we take 50% of the door, you take the bar. So there was no outlay. Yeah. So And that enabled all of us without any money to, to go and do it. And it was, you know, the Xerox of flyers were the main forms of communication. Wow. Well, I did make it my first club experiences when I was 15. I bumped off school and I got into the Mud Club. All oh, right, um, yeah, yeah. Jay Strongman was DJing and... I had the best night ever. It was just people watching and, you know, so I got a little taste of it, but um, yeah. I've always been into clubbing. And um, anyway, I'm going to move on. Um, so, yeah, it, you know, it, in terms of that time, uh, the, the West End was a magnet because of exactly, you know, it was an edgy area. It was cutting edge. It added to the excitement of clubbing. Would you agree with that? or? Well, it was also inexpensive, you know, yeah. that was the other thing. It wasn't yeah. like now bottle clubs where you have to have X amount of thousands to sit on the, have a, sit on the table. This was, yeah. you know, the wag. I saw some flyers I was looking at the other day. Some nights it was two quid to get in. The beer was just, it was literally 20%. I, I always maintained and I always fought to, to, you know, we had a lot more costs than your average pub. Back then, pubs didn't have security. They didn't have DJs. They didn't have this. They didn't have that. So our costs were a bit more, mm-hmm. a lot more, actually. So, But I always maintained to keep the prices down. And because we were the market leader, everybody had to follow us. So basically, yeah. in those days, you know, um, you know, it, it, it was cl- going to clubs were cheap mm-hmm. because we made we made sure it was so that young people could come. And they're the lifeblood of every club, or, or, or they were the lifeblood of Soul. And that's what attracted all the young, interesting, groovy people to Soul yeah. was because it was cheap and it was affordable. And also, we had St. Martin's College, which was great on the edge, and yeah. it was always full of students. And, you know... And you know, economics can can often uh, fire an area, which yeah. it, which I'm hoping it will do um, very soon, because yes. back then, you know, I don't think there's any area in London that that uh, that young students or 21, 22 year old people could afford. But Soho was one of them, you know, and that's why the coaching horses, the French yeah. shows, all those pubs have never been expensive. Yeah, 
and have always been full of interesting people. It's a rule of thumb that most interesting people are skint. Yes. The reason why they're skint is because they're generous and they're not like these penny pinchers, rich people who, yeah. who think it's their job to accumulate funds and buy a big car. Creative, interesting, nice yeah. people aren't like that. Yes. They spend their money. <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> yes, absolutely true. Um, anyway, so I, I, I hit the WAG club when I was 19 and I have to say I had the best night of my life. I was, uh, uh, like, soaked from dancing, and I, I love the yeah. dance floor, and the DJs uh, were... Um, but we'll go back into the wag a bit later. Um, so, um, <clears throat> obviously, creative, creativity has flowed through your blood for many years. You know, you can... Can you tell me what sort of really triggered that as a kid or what influence, what, you know, something... Well, as well as all I ever did was draw. I never used to have toys. I used to, you know, the old action man and all that, but mainly my Christmas presents were a stack of drawing books and a stack of pencils. So I was like a kind of child protege, if, if you know, if, 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 if it was. So yeah. I was always the one that, you know, the... I mean, I, you know, I've obviously something I did since the age of three. So, mm. you know, and it was good for me because I was like the superstar in the school. You know, he's a great drawer, you know, yeah. that, that it was. And it was always, I was always put on a pedestal above anyone else. <laughs> and I realised from an early age that, that was going to be my way out. Great. And subsequently it was. And it's just something I do and, you know, and I've always done. And so I'm, actually I'm getting back, getting back now This now that the DJ work is virtually come to a, a halt oh. uh, I'm just about to apply for a grant to further my my, my painting career only right. because I hadn't even thought about it now, I've sold about 50 paintings in the last ooh, last two years or more Fantastic. and I've just realized somebody said to me oh you're a DJ apply for this development grant and I looked at it and I thought actually I'm developed as a DJ I don't really go to go much further and I don't yeah. really believe in those virtual events mm -hmm. so I thought what do I really want to do and I thought well painting would be nice nice to have a studio nice so I'm going to do, go for that so there might be another abrupt change in my career path <laughs> which I mean I've had about six of them so yeah. far radical changes so but as they say if you don't know you if you don't try you don't know and if you aim for the ce if you aim for the ceiling you miss if you aim for the sky you hit the ceiling so mm -hmm. that's always been my attitude I'll go have a go anyway <laughs> Like you're really lucky to be in the centre of like cutting edge times with like music and fashion and clubbing and what what was the first ever club you experienced? Oh God, uh, that would be uh, Tiffany's in Merthyr Tidville. <laughs> what was that like? Uh, I had a fight, uh, as always. Tiffany's in Merthyr Tidville was like just basically like a, just a big brawl. There was a band called... In, the, in those days, you couldn't have a, just DJs. You had to have a band on. So they had a band called the Sands of Time who used to play, like, really bad versions of Tie a Yellow Ribbon around the old oak tree and stuff like that. And I remember the singer had, like, John Lennon glasses and a perm. <laughs> and it was really quite awful. And, uh, yeah, we used to go there and wait for the soul music, like Sex Machine or Zing Went the Strings of My Heart to come on and, you know, dance about. I was only 13 or 14, I think. <laughs> so I that was the sum, when I was grew up, you know, in the Tidville, that was the sum ambition of any teenager, which is where my crew, anyway, other people probably weren't the same as me. I'm, I'm sure they, they're not still. It was to get into the nightclub. That was, you know, first it was to get served in a pub. Once we found a, a suitable pub with a gay bloke who really liked young boys, we got in there quickly. We got, <laughs> he served us. And then the next step was uh, the local club where all the ladies hang out. Yeah. Unfortunately, along with the ladies come the big bruising thumpers who hated the fact that we could dance better and dress better than them. And with them came the obligatory, obligatory brawling on the dance floor. <laughs> yeah, so that was my first uh, thing. 
So, Chris, I'd like you to introduce um, your first chosen song. Yes. Well, this is a record that they used to play, funny enough, that you should ask about that, because this was released in 73 as well, I think, and uh, it's just, as I said, you asked my first nightclub experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, they used to play this one. And it's particularly... Uh, that's not why I picked it, by the way. It's just I picked it because I'm feeling particularly angry at the moment yeah. at this government, and I think the working classes or the, just the persons needs to organise themselves and rebel against and get rid of this, this administration because it's just absolutely sickening. Mm-hmm. And I just remember back in the days when, you know, unionism, I mean, a, a record don't get me a part of the union to get to top five in, in the British charts and to have roars of cheers when it was played everywhere is quite remarkable, but we need it again. Yeah. And that's why I picked this. Okay. And your chosen song is? Uh, Don't Get Me Apart the Union by the Straubs. Great. Okay, that's great, Chris. Thank you. Uh, the other thing I've been doing, funnily enough, I just started uh, directing films again. Whoa. I used to direct. I used to direct pop promos back in the eighties for like Kevin Rowland and people like that. Yeah. And now, through a quirk of fate, I was called upon to interview a lot of people. Great. And uh, the, the, the 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 director, I had ideas, and I I took I got all of the wrong sticks, so I ended up directing them. <laughs> Great. And so I've just done Philip Salon, I've oh. done Joe, Joe Corey, I've done Christos, so they're just these little vignettes, oh, four-minute vignettes of, of various people. I've done uh, the painter um, Philip Colbert, Excellent. I've done the other rock and roll painter, uh, Mark Sloper, who did that painting that the Queen saw with, you know, the one with yeah. the Queen and all that. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm, uh, that's my new project. Okay. I'm going to do a series, I because th- I feel that a lot of... A lot of the characters we know, particularly those who hang around so- Soho, mm-hmm. need to be recorded. And I guess, you know, 20 years ago I would have painted a portrait, or I still could, and, or written about them, but I think the medium of today for these people with short attention spans is the movie. And as yeah. I've, been a film, I've been a film journalist as well, people forget, since 2003. Uh, that's my job. Yes. Well, it was my job until they started closing down the cinemas. <laughs> Well, we've got loads more to this. I'm going to pause you for one second. I just want to sort of delve into, like, the fashion aspect. Um, it's always been a major influence. And is it true you you actually used to tailor? You made some of your own No, I, I was taught tailoring. I, I was never into fashion. No, okay. fashion is one thing I don't like. It's uh, style. Okay, style. Is what I think. I always say Let's that fashion is, that, your style. fashion is for the sheep. Style is for the individual. I've never had any interest okay. or track with any fashion whatsoever. Right. I've just always dressed as I want to, whether that be, you know, Rudolph Valentino or yes. bloody you know, jo- John Wayne or whatever. Yeah. I've just exactly led my own path and okay. I still do. Can I so, rephrase that question? Then, Style yeah. has always been a major influence. Yeah. And um, I was just reading about you making some of your own, being into a bit of tailoring and... Yeah. Well, I went to St. Martin's, you see, so I learned tailoring there. I mean, I didn't last very long in the when it, in the in the, in the fashion department, but I, then I moved to painting. But, uh, yeah, I had a label called Sullivan Suits. I did, you know, couple, uh, and I was used to design for D-Mob, the shop that was in Beak Street. And I said, I've designed all the suits. I did some Adamant, Spandau Ballet, Madness. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, Wham!, uh, Diana Ross. I've done. I've done suits for small pop stars you could possibly imagine. Uh, that was my job for a, what, a little while. Um, 
yeah, visor, uh, not visage, I did. Well, anyway, lots of them in it. Uh, yeah, so I did that. And how for did a while, you fit your, your Latin band in, yeah. Blue Rondo Alec Is that all lovely? That, did you well, start your own band? Working. It was beautiful. Yes, yeah, yeah, really yeah cool. barely. Well, that was, it was, it was simply because in the midst of the. Yeah. Yeah, in the midst of all that uh, kind of new romantic y stuff, I hated the term new romantic. It was such a dodgy term. Anyway, the, I realised that, you know, I never dressed in all that big shoulders and makeup and big hair, and even though I didn't mind some electro music. So I saw a big chin. I saw. I felt myself going away from it. I was listening to a lot of jazz at the time and I had a big collection of funk records because I was a soul boy in the 70s. Mm. And I really started getting into Latin music. I went to New York in the summer and I came back from New York. I stayed in Lower East Side and in a Latin tenement. Every morning I'd wake up to the sound of Ray Barreto and all that and I thought, God, I want, I want to make, make this. When I came back to London, there were no shops to buy the music. There were only a few so jazz you, shops. Where were you, like Alphabet City around that area? No, in uh, 10th, 10th, yeah, sort of, 10th Street and Avenue That's A, I was, which, yeah. which was, you know, not deep in Al Alphabet City, but, you know, sort of on the corny edges. So I came back and I, I saw that there was a paucity of records, of, of any Latin records. I mean, you'd have raised jazz, would have like half a dozen, or you'd have mm -hmm. old jazz, would have a few. So, But I didn't want to play the Latin music, I wanted to mix it all up, so I decided, completely untrained, I, know, I had no idea what I was doing, to get this band together that fused Latin. But actually, it started off, it wasn't even supposed to be songs, it was supposed to be poetry, because I was really into Tom Waits at the same time. Oh. And the last poets, I was kind of forced into writing songs by the record company and the, my man and my manager. But initially, it was going to be like jazz, Latin y funk grooves with sort of poetry over, which of course let, let, became rap yeah. later on. And I wish I'd stuck by my guns and I'd been swayed by. The record company who thought yeah. we were a we were a top ten band and we weren't at all. I mean, my influences were kind of Tito Puente, James Brown, and Miles Davis. I mean, how can you yeah. get the top ten with that? <laughs> but anyway, you know. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, that's what how that started. It was a great thing to do. You know, I did it for about five years. And did you tour? Uh, for, did you sort of go abroad with the band? Did we tour? Go out? Yeah, I, I toured. I, did, I I think I did about thousand dates. I mean, I toured. Wow. I did two. 45 date tours of Europe played in America <laughs> toured Britain about six times yeah wow. absolutely God, uh, yeah yeah we were we mainly were a live band that was our forte yeah like going back to your early years it's amazing when you think of like the spectrum of decades you've seen through culture and the arts and creativity what are your thoughts for the present time I'm very positive for now because I think now that we've had this Covid thing it's redressed the balance and I think all these assholes out there that think their possessions are all and the money is everything and now getting kicked right up the arse. So I'm hoping that this is going to re redress so people can see what's important and what's important are people, friends and creativity rather than having a big car outside your house because you haven't got a personality. Yeah. Uh, and I think this is going to... Funny enough, I had a friend on the phone from New York uh, last night and he was saying oh it's great like it used to be he says I'm sad to say this economics and put it like this he said there's no bankers there's no tourists there's no assholes there's nobody around he said he says he says apartments loft apartments in the East Village that were 20 grand a week and now have gone down to 10 grand to 5 grand a week yeah. he says there are you know there's shops empty you can rent for nothing yeah. and he says so as he says he says he says he 
he was too young at the time, but I recall when New York actually almost went bankrupt. And, oh. and the reason what happened in New York when it went bankrupt was that a lot of the businesses that were taking, occupy, occupying these lower east side um, studio spaces, which they became, a lot of them were just sweatshops. And, yeah. you know, a lot of those businesses died. Yeah. So they all moved out. And what they did, what did they leave? Big empty apartments that didn't have... Um, they didn't have planning permission for for habitation. So what happened? In came the artists who didn't give a shit about whether they had a toilet or not, or whether they yeah. had a bath and all that. What happened? New York punk, yeah. disco, rap. Yeah. The, uh, the, I mean, you know, New York for a while was the centre of the creative world, and it was you know Keith Haring, Basquiat, yes. Clemente, Schnabel. They all yeah. came out through that, and I think that's what's going to happen again. And we've seen it. That's, ourselves at the moment. You've made with... me feel so much better because I was going to just say, do you agree that we need to go back to the drawing board or will something evolve spontaneously? It I... evolves spontaneously. Yes. We, we don't need to go back to the drawing board. Yeah. We're already back on the drawing yeah, board. Exactly. And, you know, and, and, that, and it's economics are going, to, are going to be the hand that makes the drawings. Yes. And that's, I'll give an example, you know. I know somebody that, that has rented a, a two-double bedroom Ensuite bathroom with a living room flat in Soho for four hundred pound a week is two double bedrooms. Yeah, it was nine hundred a year ago. Yeah, <laughs> you know they can't they can't get rid of them. And I'm open. What I'm hoping is that in Soho, for example, all of these little shop fronts, all of these big chains are all going to go. Like Byron, I saw that's gone, which it deserves to go. And the landlords, they can't have empty property. They're going to have to rent it out to uh, to independents. And I'm starting up this thing. This uh, at the moment, because there's so much office space that is just lying empty, and office space as you can't live in it apparently, but you can you can have studios in it. Fantastic. So I'm trying to I'm trying to appeal to the Arts Council and various landlords and trying to make a bridge between uh, artists yeah. and empty space. So yes. at least these spaces are used because it's a fact. If you leave a space empty, it just goes to rack and ruin. Yeah. You need you need people in there to in keep a way, it they going. Come like the guardian, you know those guardians that people come in and look after buildings. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But they pay. Yeah, you, you don't pay them; they pay you, yes. even though it might be a nominal fee. Yeah. And the thing about that, you see, with an office space, it only has a men's toilet and a woman's toilet on each floor. You couldn't have that if you were living there. They'd have to put a toilet in, have to put a kitchen in, have to do this, that. But it's perfect for, for art. And no one is, and I don't care what this government thinks, no one is going to go back to travelling to the office every day. They can work from it, home. It's, it's absolutely <laughs> ridiculous Not to even think that. Not journey from Kent in six in the morning. Yes, and then, you know, pay, yes. yeah. pay ridiculous prices for sandwiches in the West End and exactly. all that. They just ain't going to do it. You know what I mean? It's just it's a stupid idea that, that, that they should ever think, bring people back there was some idiot in the evening standard he set out his plan to get people back i just thought <laughs> what what planet are you on my friend yeah. wow. you're not my friend at all you asshole <laughs> i've said that three times now anyway but it's better than other words i could come yeah. up with do you think technology has ruined the creative process for some people in terms is it what the technology like social media um attention span and focus would turn you know i'm just uh, no, I don't think, no, I... You know, like, I, I sorry, the reason I, I said that is that there was talk of getting classic books and turning them into five-minute books because people just don't want to 
reading oh, well, no, them, that's, that's and that ridiculous. really worries me. What, what's your thoughts? Well, that's that's ridiculous. As obviously you said, it's like it's like saying, "Oh, let's go watch, uh, you know, like um, Spartacus," and, yeah. you know, and, and turn it into a promo because <laughs> you you miss all the depth and all the theory. I mean, that's just an absurd idea. Yeah. But there is a problem, and it's kind of you know the Conservative Party or since Thatcher have dumbed down the population by feeding them. If you look at the BBC now, compared to what it was years ago, you had a centre man, you had great black and white films. Now the BBC has been pushed into, you know, sort of not in, not informing the population at all, while the Conservatives have driven down the uh, the average intelligence of the British person to record levels, I think. And I think that now, um, you know, the days when kids uh, uh, read books, for whatever reason, are gone. And I think this, you know, this has been deliberately on, on the pop, the deliberate of the, the Tory party propaganda pra- machine, and that's yeah. why they've got in. There's yeah. nothing more dangerous than an intelligent enemy. Yeah. And I think this is one of the reasons why we we well, we we have a rather dim population at the moment because yeah. it's it's started in the eighties and it's been the de-education of yeah. a, a whole group of people and now those people who they who were de-educated in the eighties and nineties are now the parents of the kids now. Yes. And it all begins at home. Yeah. Books begin at home. Art begins at home. Yeah. We are, this is what we're suffering. We not it's it, you know it, social media is a quick fix and. You know, it's 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 anti-social media. I call it because it yes. keeps people indoors, <laughs> and it's not a bad it's thing because it connects people. But it, yes. it's 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 horribly abused, is what it is. Yeah. If it was used more like the post office mm-hmm. or like emails, glad. Yeah. But some people just go on it and just get sucked into it and just speak nonsense yeah. all day. And Twitter, oh my God, that's like a that's like a big sewer. Yeah, the revolting people that vent there. Ill, ill-founded sort of <coughs> comments. I, I, there's a book bloke today, so I, I get this few people. I, I look at them now and again. I don't ever say anything. Bloke said this asshole who was called another. I've said it four times now. Anyway, <laughs> I'm, anyway, I'm counting them now. So art is all right. Ah, like, uh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't forget. I, I've said what's worse than that on my show on Straw Radio. <laughs> but anyway, no, it's this guy today. He's called the. It was called True Blue Remedies or something. Some conservative idiot. He said, uh, "Oh, I just passed." a tree full of berries so what they are about feeding children mm-hmm. so I just answered do you not know that berries are not <coughs> will not feed a child oh I forgot you're a conservative because <laughs> they're, they're just you know the thing is about in- thing about, about intelligent people they're usually compassionate that's why conservatives yeah. are just stupid. They're like these dogs who get a bone. That's about the level of their intelligence. They just bury it in the garden and think that they're going to have it when they die. Actually, it's just going to rot. Mm-hmm. Anyway, do you think there's going to be like sort of creative explosion after all of this? It's going to be the biggest creative. Ex- it's going to be the biggest explosion we've ever seen. Look yeah. historically. Look after the plague. Yes. There was a great creative explosion. Yeah. Not only that, after the plague, that's what ended serfdom. Yes. After the plague, yeah. look at the 1920s. Yeah. What did you have? The, the, the war to end all wars, yeah. followed by the Spanish flu that killed between 50 and 100 million people. Now, that's who are registered. Don't forget, yeah. in those days, they didn't have the NHS. There's more people died because they thought they were just old. Like, you know, and, and what happened to the, the 1920s? What was the 1920s? The jazz age, the birth the of cinema, 20s. the roaring 20s, the, 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 the Annie Foley, you know, the, the great Paris. Look at Paris in the 20s. 
Chanel, um, Chaparelli, Picasso, uh, yeah. the surrealism, Man Ray, uh, Bunuel, you know, I mean, it, it's like it's absolutely shocking. I, I was mean, laughing just... because when it hit New Year last year, I was like, hooray, it's going to be the new Boring Twenties. It will and be. COVID, so in some cases it has been the, the Boring Twenties. <laughs> no, well, no, not yet, though. No, 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 no. Don't, forget, don't forget that it, it didn't kick, you know, the, yeah. the, the, it's virtually repeating itself because... Yeah. You know the 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 Spanish flu, which is actually not Spanish at all, came from Kansas City. It was called the Kansas City illness originally, and yeah. funnily enough, that's where jazz kind of came from in the twenties. Is it was uh, you know the who jazz thing? All those guys, Ben Webster, Coleman Hawkins, Charlie Parker, they're all Kansas City boys. Yeah. So you think about that, you know? Yeah. Um, and you, uh, yeah, you know. I wanted to talk a little bit about your um, books. You know, you've done. Oh well, I was just about to say to you. Uh, uh, well, on the back of that, if you want to read about Paris in the twenties, yeah. there, there's a whole chapter on it in my in my book, the last one, uh, Rebel, Rebel, Rebel Rebel, how Mavericks yeah. made the modern world, and that's yeah. just uh, recently been published and can yeah. be purchased. Waterstones, there's an all book on, uh, uh, online book outlets. You'll yeah. find it. Fantastic yeah. reviews. I haven't had a chance to read it, no. but I will. And when I see you, I'd like you to sign it. Yes. Um, but I want to say thank you so much, Chris, for coming onto the show. Um, That's fine. Lovely. And um, you've got your Soho radio show coming up. I have, you? yeah. What I have, it? yeah. I don't have so many guests anymore. Yeah. Because, I mean, I, I just, as you can realise, I, I, I take up all the space rent in my own spleen. <laughs> so. <laughs> so I used to have a lot of guests. Uh, it's just it's just organising people, especially these days. You know, getting people to come in, again all this and that. And um, I mean, I might start doing it now that you now. I might start doing a few more interviews like you've yeah. done them. I've done them on the phone, but it does. It's not exactly the same, is it? I oh, know it's weird, but at least. But anyway, mine's mainly music. Anyway, yeah. And I, I love music. your music. I've been on yeah. many a night on the dance floor, and I'm looking <laughs> forward to seeing you on the dance floor. Wait, where you wait? Eh? <laughs> what you just imagine you wait. All these people, this pent up. Yeah. It, it's just common sense. Yes. These people just can't wait to dress up. They can't wait to dance again. They can't yeah. wait to get in a full room. Yes. It just makes common sense. Yeah. And what happens? Necessity is the mother of invention. People are always going to come up with something new when they've got nothing. Yeah. Many a masterpiece was written on an empty stomach. Remember that one, you know. Yeah, so that's why. Great. That's why. That's why I'm very, very optimistic. I, I said to my friend from New York, "I'm just glad to be about for this forthcoming decade. I think it's going to be the most remarkable one I'll ever seen in my wow. lifetime." Well, that's great, Chris. Yeah. Thank you so much, and my I'd pleasure. Love you to introduce um, your second track. And yes. Thank you so much. Well, yeah, this next track is one of the great influences on my life, Gil Scott Heron. I mean, I was mm. politically motivated before, but this is The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, which I wish the British people had more balls, like the French, so we'd have a revolution, because it's, it's, it's well overdue. But you know what they say, what I say about the Conservative Party at the moment? The, in the words of Napoleon, don't interfere with your enemy when he's making a mistake. <laughs> and don't forget, the revolution will not be televised. It will be live. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of love, Chris. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Voilà, c'est le Céline de Salon, une émission de poésie. Well, what a lovely show today on Céline Salon. Um, Romani, thank you so much for taking the time to let me interview you. No problem at all. And to share with us your stunning music. <laughs> thank you so much. It means the world. Thank you so much. Have a great time listening to it. <laughs> Everyone, watch this space. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. 
And thank you, Chris Sullivan. What a wonderful man you are. Please open a nightclub in the West End again. We need it so badly. We need you. And you've been listening to Celine Salon, and I'm wishing you a happy Halloween. And I want to play out with a song that got me dancing at Chris's Wag Club, the Mud Club. It's James Brown. Fellas, I'm ready to get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like a, like a sex machine, man. Moving, doing it, you know. Can I count it off? 